Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Fairview this morning will be in Matthew 21 verses 33 through 46. Thank you for remaining standing as I read God's word. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, there are sometimes people who have a little bit of knowledge about the Bible. You've heard it said before, if you have a, sometimes you can have a little bit of knowledge is having a little bit of knowledge is dangerous, right? Uh, Sometimes there are people that have enough knowledge about the Bible to kind of understand a few things and, and, but they'll make a sharp distinction between the Old Testament portrayal of God and the New Testament portrayal of God. Uh, they'll see that, uh, like this, this big difference between God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New. So they'll say, you know, Jesus, he's this mild-mannered man of goodness and grace, as opposed, you know, to that, to that Old Testament God who, who executed judgment and vengeance. And, and sometimes you can see this idea come out when people, they quote Jesus's command, judge not that you be not judged right? As if that's the overriding statement that just sort of blankets everything that Jesus taught. But you know, whenever people talk about there being this major difference between uh, the Old Testament God and what we see in Jesus, you know, I start to think about all those passages in the Old Testament where God is described as compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love from generation to generation. And I think about all the passages that you see in the Old Testament where God's people spurned him, where they defied him, ran away from him, and the extraordinary patience of God 
in the Old Testament. So the idea that the Old Testament God is just this you know, angry God of wrath when, when compared to the New Testament's depiction of Jesus, well, it just doesn't hold up when you really read the Old Testament closely. And then there's another problem with that contrast. When we read the Gospels, like when we really read the Gospels, when you read Jesus' words, the red letters in your Bible, uh, you quickly discover that Jesus is not just this quiet, mild-mannered man who's just dispensing folksy wisdom all the time. No, he's the king. He overturns tables in the temple. He excoriates the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. He challenges the kingdoms of this world until he becomes a threat and he is taken away to be executed. I mean, the Jesus of the New Testament is not just someone who, who shows mercy and grace and performs miracles and heals people. He's also someone who warns of judgment. I mean, Jesus talks about hell a lot when you read the Gospels. So to see the Old Testament God is just angry all the time, it's, it's to flatten the picture of God in the Old Testament. But to see Jesus as, as merely this good and nice teacher, well, that flattens him out too. It makes him one-dimensional. You know, today we are continuing in our series on the stories that Jesus told. And so far we've, we've seen how many of the parables of Jesus emphasize grace and mercy. You think about the, the parable of the prodigal son that we looked at or the, the parable of the good Samaritan. You know, these are vivid pictures of the grace of God and, and the love we're to have for our neighbor. But you know, we don't do justice to the parables until we also see how many stories that Jesus told get right to the heart of God's judgment. You know, there's the story about uh, the sudden death that comes to the rich man who was building all those barns and he didn't have a place to store his surplus and then suddenly he died. You know, there's that story. Or there's the story of the rich man in torment after having ignored the beggar Lazarus on his doorstep. You know, we started off this series uh, quite a few weeks ago now, but with uh, the story of the wise and the foolish builders. You know, one building on the rock and the other building on the sand. And when the storm finally came, only one of those buildings survived. You know, the wicked tenants, it's one of the strongest, one of the most pointed of Jesus's parables. And, you know, it's not as famous as the prodigal son. It's not as well known as the good Samaritan, but it does show up in three of the four gospels. And the point of this story, I think if we just summed it up, we would say judgment comes to those who reject God's commands, those who reject God's warnings, and those who reject God's son. And you know, this parable, it's one of the reasons Jesus got crucified. It is. The religious leaders understood that he was speaking about them. So here we see the privilege and the responsibility that comes with God's calling on our lives. We also see... We're going to see grace in this parable, the grace of God that comes to us in, in his warnings to us. But then we'll also see the judgment of God in his retribution toward those who reject his son. So there's some stark imagery in this parable, but it's there to remind us, to call us, to remind us that we are called to bear the fruit of repentance and mission and to fulfill the purpose that God has for us as his people. Okay, so let's take a closer look at the story. First, we see the beginning part of the story, the wicked tenants reject their responsibility as stewards. 
they reject his responsibility as stewards. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times people, when they talk about the parables of Jesus, will say, Jesus taught in parables in order to make his teaching easier for everybody to understand, to follow along with. But what's interesting is that in Mark chapter four and Matthew 13, Jesus actually says that one of the reasons he tells parables is to confound people so that they wouldn't be quite as clear about what it is what he, what it is that he was saying. That's what he says in Matthew 13. In other words, what he says is the parables, the fact that Jesus, and you see this, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus is speaking more and more in parables. The parables themselves are a sign of God's judgment on the religious leaders uh, of the day. That's something that grows more and more evident in Jesus's ministry. And his parables get more and more pointed and targeted and specific. So let's look at how the wicked tenant starts out. He says in verse 33, look, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. I want us to understand just what's going on in this beginning of the parable. You see, as soon as Jesus begins talking about the vineyard, everybody that's listening to him is going to think back to something. I want to show you a picture for a minute. Take a look at this picture of an elephant and a donkey having a battle. Now, what does that mean to you? What does that mean? signify. I mean, you probably, I think everybody in here recognize this is a picture that's doing more than illustrating old McDonald had a farm, right? I mean, you all know the elephant and the donkey duking it out. These are stand-in animals for Republicans and Democrats. So if I were to start off this morning telling you a story about an elephant and a donkey, you would immediately know that I'm making a point about American politics, about America's political parties. Something similar to that is going on at the beginning of this parable. But because we are removed from the original context, we could easily miss the connection. See, as soon as Jesus starts talking about a vineyard, everybody in his original audience thinks back to Isaiah 5. Everyone, Isaiah 5, it's the, the song of the vineyard that you have in the Old Testament. It's like, it's like if you're singing a song or a melody or taking some words from a song that everybody knows and suddenly everyone starts singing along, that's what Jesus is doing here. So I want us to jump back to Isaiah 5 and I want you to see this passage so that you get some background on what Jesus is doing. This is what Isaiah 5 says. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. 
Okay, do you see the similarities? Jesus wasn't telling a story about a vineyard and these, the wine press and the wicked tenants out of the blue. He was building on a story that everybody already knew from the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus's parable is about God and his people. That's really clear. And as Jesus retold the vineyard story, he made it clear that the religious leaders, those are the tenants, who had been called by the owner, that's God, to watch over the vineyard, that's Israel, the religious leaders had failed. The people had received the great privilege of being chosen by God, but they had failed to live up to the responsibility that goes along with that blessing. God was looking for fruit from his people, especially from the religious leaders, and no fruit was found. But instead of apologizing for their lack of fruit, the tenants of the vineyard treat the owner terribly. They resent the intrusion of the vineyard owner through his sending of messengers. And what's fascinating about the way Jesus tells the story, it's not that they didn't bear any fruit. It's that the fruit that they did bear was bad. It was spoiled. It was worthless. So instead of offering the good fruit of repentance for their failures, they offered the bad fruit of rebellion. So already in this story, there's a challenge to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. But what about us? You know, the Apostle Paul claimed that believers in Jesus, those of us who are believers in Jesus, we are grafted in to Israel. So as, as part of God's people, we are God's vineyard. We're given the privilege of, of being his people. But that also comes along with a weighty responsibility of fulfilling his call on our lives. Make sure you don't miss this. When God calls you to salvation, he calls you to service. We are stewards of the gospel. We, that, that means we are responsible for good works. You know, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, right? It's not of works. It's of grace that we've been saved. But you know, right after that, verse 10 in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are God's workmanship created to do good works in Christ Jesus. That's what he says, uh, created by God to do good works that he has planned for us. You know, I know sometimes we like to say, God has a plan for my life. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for all of our lives here. And that's absolutely true. And listen, it is comforting in times of distress to know that God has a plan, even when we can't see it. Isn't that one of the beautiful, most comforting aspects that we believe about God? But did you realize that God's plan is not just related to the circumstances that will happen to you? God's plan is also about the blessings that will happen through you. You realize that? God's plan doesn't just involve your circumstances. God's plan also involves the blessings that you pass on to others, the way God wants to bless others through you. God's plan is not just about how things are working out for you, but how you are working out your salvation for the good of others. That's God's plan, that you would do good works that bring glory to God's son. We have been chosen to share, not to hoard God's blessings. Now, I have to go back to this picture of two types of Christianity. You have your sink Christians and you have your faucet Christians. Your sink Christians, uh, they look at salvation as if it's something to just soak up, you know? Just, ah, yes, I'm going to heaven. 
you know what? I love this. I'm part of a great church. Isn't salvation wonderful? I've got peace in this life and I've got future for the next life. You know, the water of salvation comes down to us and we just soak up the benefits. Fawcett Christians realize we're not saved so we can just soak up the benefits. We're saved to be, not to be sinks, but to be faucets. Salvation comes to us so that it then can go through us out to the wider world. This is the whole point of God calling Abraham and saying, I will bless the nations through you. Did it, was Abraham blessed? Yes. Did Abraham receive salvation? Yes. But the whole point of it was so that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. See, salvation comes to us so that it then can go through us and out to the wider world. We are chosen by God in order that we might be a blessing, not just so that we will get a blessing. Until we see ourselves as stewards, we're not going to really understand the nature of our call. So let's read on. Well, the second major aspect of this parable is that the wicked tenants reject God's warnings and God's son. So as we mentioned earlier, the wicked tenants is a parable of judgment. But if you notice, the judgment is a long time coming, isn't it? I mean, no one would look at this vineyard owner and be like, that vineyard owner is just out to get those tenants. Because look at what happens. I mean, look at the astonishing level of patience and restraint that comes. He sends messenger after messenger. Let's pick up in verse 36. Again, he sent other servants more than the first group. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit of the harvest. You know, although the main point of this parable is the judgment of God, we should not overlook the shocking display of patience on the part of the vineyard owner. He keeps sending messengers to the tenants, and the tenants continue to mistreat the messengers. I mean, it almost seems silly that he lets the situation go on this long, doesn't it? Now, the people in Jesus' day, if they're hearing this parable, they would have immediately made the connection between the servants and the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets were the one, God kept sending prophets, and they kept coming with a message. Thus says the Lord, this is the Lord's declaration. They, they spoke on behalf of God in order to remind God's people of their vocation. They called on Israel's leaders to be obedient. You know, the prophets held the people accountable for their sin. They pointed them toward God. They urged people to repent. And just as the wicked tenants mistreated the servant messengers, so the leaders of Israel, the political leaders, the religious leaders, they would mistreat the prophets. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. Now, you'd expect God to respond immediately after having one of his prophets mistreated, wouldn't you? Instead, God continued to warn, continued to warn his people of the consequences of their sin, continued to send prophet after prophet, no matter how badly they were treated. Now, this doesn't even seem logical, does it? I mean, how many times does a vineyard owner need to send the servants who get mistreated or they get beaten, they get stoned or they get killed before realizing maybe I shouldn't keep sending servants or maybe I should do something else? right? Maybe something more drastic. I mean, how many times does God need to send prophets to warn his people before he takes more decisive action? You say, it doesn't sound logical. Well, logic and reason aren't the focus here. It's love. It's grace. It's God's patience. 
It's not logic that drives God, it's love. You know, we tend to think of warnings as something bad, you know, a sign of judgment. But what if God's warnings are really the sign of his grace and his patience? And then the parable continues with the vineyard owner sending his own son. The analogy up to this point is getting really clear. Just as God's people had rejected the warnings that had come from love, so also they reject the son who comes in love. The wicked tenants see the son, they covet his inheritance, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. In the same week that Jesus uttered this parable, the religious leaders would conspire to throw Jesus out of Jerusalem and crucify him on the outskirts of town. What's fascinating and ironic is that the religious leaders who get angry about this parable step into the role and fulfill their part of the story the same week they heard it. It's really incredible. You know, there's another important feature here. Jesus presents the son as distinct from the servant. So he comes in last in a long line of servants, but the son's arrival marks the turning part in the story. And you know, Jesus himself, he saw himself as coming in a long line of prophets, but he saw his own relationship with the father as distinct from everyone who had come before him. So there's seriousness here in rejecting the son of God. Now, I know some of you may be reading this or you're hearing this and you think, well, where do we fit into this story? Well, here's the application for us. On the one hand, there's a warning. The parable is a warning for anyone who rejects the son of God. Listen, you reject Jesus and you invite the judgment of God. I know if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear that word of warning. And I know I can come across offensive, but you need to hear what Jesus is teaching here about himself. You have to reckon with it. You can think he's wrong, but I at least want to tell you what he's saying. On the other hand, the parable also serves as a warning to people who think they belong to God's people, but continue to ignore his warnings. I mean, this is a warning for all of us church folks in here. We show we belong to God by obeying him, by listening to his warnings, by embracing his son, by failing to heed God's warnings. We don't heed God's warnings. It's like we are taking a stand against the prophets and against Jesus himself. And don't think that your church membership shields you from the consequences of standing against Jesus. More on that in a minute, but let's read on first. The, the last thing I would say about the parable is that God rejects the wicked tenants for their wicked schemes. So Jesus starts quoting from a Psalm and then it becomes really clear. Jesus is issuing strong judgment against his people's failure to bear fruit. And the religious leaders suddenly realize, oh, he's talking about us. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. What's funny is the people are more clued in to who Jesus is than the religious leaders are. 
Now, it would be easy for us. I just want to clear up a couple of things here. You can press the parables of Jesus for analogies that go too far and can wind up leading you into a bad place. So let me just, there's ways to misinterpret a couple of points in Jesus's parable if you press it for too many details. So I just want to clear up a couple of things. First, in the parable, it seems like the vineyard owner doesn't know what's going to happen when he keeps sending servants and then he finally sends the son, right? So if you see the vineyard owner as a stand-in, as an analogy for God, you could think that God himself was, you know, taken aback. Like he's surprised. He's surprised at how the prophets were treated or how his son were, 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 was treated. But we know from the scriptures that God knew his son was going to die. That's why he sent him. That God so loved the world that he gave his son to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Right? So that's the first thing you just want to be clear that you don't misinterpret. A second thing is you could take Jesus's words here about the vineyard being taken away and given to others. And some people have done this over the years. They've taken it as if it's a full-blown like rejection of Israel. But that's not the case because we see from the letters of the apostle Paul that what's taking place here is not God rejecting Israel. It's God reconstituting Israel around his son, around the Messiah. Jesus is the cornerstone for God's new people. So really quick, just to summarize the main truths that we learn from the parables, I like how Craig Blomberg, he's a New Testament scholar, he sums up the story three things really quickly. He says, first, God is patient and long-suffering, waiting for people to bear the fruit he requires of them, even when they are repeatedly and overtly hostile in their rebellion against him. That's the first main takeaway. The second one is, a day will come when God's patience is exhausted, And those who have rejected him will be destroyed. And then the third, God's purposes will not be thwarted. He will raise up new leaders who will produce the fruit the original ones failed to provide. So let's apply this parable to our situation today. We should be aware just how religious the rejection of Jesus and the prophets was. You know, sometimes we tend to think of people in categories. You know, religious, irreligious. No, religious people, good, irreligious people, bad, you know? But in this case, the people who get the strongest condemnation from God are the religious leaders and the people who didn't bear any fruit. They were religious, but they weren't fruitful. You know, sometimes religiosity can mask a life of lovelessness. Don't think that just because someone is religious that they are living a life of love and good works toward God. It's often the church where the most loveless people can hide. Where people can mask their lovelessness with dutiful observance. Didn't we see that in the parable of the prodigal son? Or should we say the sons, the two lost sons? What about the older brother? He looked great on the outside, right? He was so close to the father. He never left the house. He never stopped his work. But in his heart, he was very far from the heart of the Father. Now, I know this is a parable of God's judgment. And I realize there may be people here that are offended at the idea of God judging sinners. But if we're going to apply this parable the way Jesus would have us do, the way Jesus told it in the first century, in a consistent way, then whether we are religious or irreligious, everybody in this room ought to feel the pinch. We all ought to feel it. If you're thinking about someone else, you're doing it wrong. We should all feel the pressure 
the warning that Jesus gives us through the story. Here's the deal. We cannot rely on our religiosity or our sincerity to escape the wrath of God. We only rely on Jesus. He is the cornerstone of our faith. He is the one who incorporates us into his people. Belonging to God's people is both a privilege and a responsibility, just like it was in Jesus's day. And if you wanna place yourself in the story, don't think of yourself as the good guys here. See yourself in the place of the wicked tenants because along with the religious leaders, our voices were the ones a few days later crying out, crucify him, crucify him. It was not just the sin of Israel that put Jesus on the cross. It was the sin of the whole world. You've got the collaboration of Rome, the Gentiles, and Israel, the Jews. We are the ones who have spurned God. We are the ones who have ignored his warnings. We are the ones who have turned on his only son. It was our sins that contributed to Christ being put on that cross. It was our shame he was buried. It was our guilt he took upon himself. It was the wrath we deserve that he absorbed. So we have here a picture of a loving God of justice, a God with tremendous patience, slow to anger, abounding in love, but who in the end will not be mocked forever. Even in the Old Testament, slow to anger, abounding in love from generation to generation, but he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. It's all there together. So the question that remains for us is, when the patience of God is exhausted, on which side of the furious judgment of God will we be found? That's the question. Because it's only in embracing the Son, trusting in Him, that's the only way we find salvation. Instead of being the cornerstone that crushes us in judgment, Jesus becomes the cornerstone of our new life in Him the cornerstone of the new people of God that we belong to. The wicked tenants, yes, it's a parable of judgment. I think it's been really clear. But its purpose is gracious to bring us to repentance, to bring us to faith in the Son. Listen, the portrait of a meek and mild Jesus that is just would never judge anyone that you see out in society, who, that's a figment of the imagination. We serve a Savior with scandalous grace, but a savior who also judges. We say it every week in the Apostles' Creed. We believe he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And in this parable, we see a glimpse of God's patience, but we also see his swift retribution. So my prayer this morning is that we would let the words of Jesus, not sugarcoated, fall on our hearts, on our minds, on our ears, to shock our senses, to lead us to see ourselves as a steward of the blessings that he intends to have flow through us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for this parable. And even though it's a hard truth that comes out of this parable, Father, we pray that you would give us soft hearts, soft hearts who can receive this truth, hearts that want to be stewards of your grace, stewards of your blessings, people who bear the fruit of repentance and mission so that we bring you glory and you receive all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.org.